Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Robert Yeager and the Tao Foundation. As the coronavirus pandemic forces elementary schools across New England to close, teachers are scrambling to put together remote learning for students. There are a fair amount of my kids who I really don't want on a computer all day. From the New England News Collaborative, this is Next. We'll talk about the impact of coronavirus on schools. And earlier this year, a New England town decided to reinstate a school mascot that critics say is racist and offensive to Native Americans. Naming a team a skin color in 2020 is just ridiculous, really. And back in 2012, Jeremy Lin was the only Asian American basketball player in the NBA, and he was on fire. Then Lynn had a bad game, and an ESPN editor tried to capture it in a headline. People were misinterpreting this headline as a racial slur and not as um, an expression to describe, you know, his first display of weakness. It's Next. Next is produced at Connecticut Public Radio and is powered by the New England News Collaborative, 10 public media companies coming together to tell the story of a changing region with support from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. I'm Morgan Springer. Thanks for joining us. With school closures now in effect across New England, teachers are facing an unprecedented challenge, how to teach their students remotely for the next few weeks or longer. Schools are figuring out how to get meals and computers to students in need, and teachers are brainstorming how to keep students engaged while isolated at home. New Hampshire Public Radio's Sarah Gibson has more. When Governor Sununu announced school closures, Deerfield fourth grade teachers Martha Dalrymple and Sue Laskowski were at school for a big strategy session. (laughs) We're we're sitting in my classroom. With um, piles of books and packets. Got a lot of piles of organized papers. The State Department of Education is also brainstorming and says there are a lot of ways remote learning can happen. Some schools will teach mostly online. Others will send out paper packets like the ones from this classroom. Laskowski and Dalrymple are both planning a hybrid computer and paper. Laskowski says in part because digital only doesn't work for fourth graders. There are a fair amount of my kids who I really don't want on a computer all day. You know, that is what they do on their spare time. So I was really adamant on I need to put together some paper and pencil things, some reading, some get them some books. How to get them those books and materials is one of the many questions Deerfield Community School is figuring out today. Another question, how to give kids a sense of continuity in a time of upheaval. Dalrymple plans to send videos of herself reading aloud the Roald Dahl book Matilda. So I think that would be a good way for my face and my personality and tone to still be present that they can still look to and enjoy. This remote learning experiment relies a lot on adult supervision, especially for young kids. In his emergency order, Sununu says parents who miss work to care for their children will be eligible for state unemployment benefits. But Dalrymple says a lot of parents can't necessarily leave their jobs. You know, I have a family that comes to mind. They have four kids um, and mom is a nurse and 
dad is a police officer in Manchester. So they have to work. They have to work. (laughs) They're the personnel that we need, you know. With so many questions still up in the air, teachers say planning is critical. In the 48 hours before the emergency order, individual districts were announcing closures and shifts to remote learning. But some had built in a transition time to help students and teachers prep together. This was Christy Carden's plan. She teaches second grade in Londonderry. But after the emergency order, she's had to adjust. Now I think I'm even more stressed. (laughs) Just because we have no access to the kids now except through the internet. That means no one-on-one, no helping second graders learn how to use a tablet or log into Google Classroom. Cardin spent all day on her phone, brainstorming with her colleagues, answering questions from worried parents. Yesterday was the first time my battery has ever died on my phone because I can't keep it charged. It's just everybody is kind of like in a panic state trying to figure out how to get the education across, you know, to get our job done and to help families. And like so many other teachers, when Cardin starts teaching from home, she'll also be parenting. Her two sons, 9 and 13, will be learning remotely and they need supervision. She says she has strict schedules for them and her second graders to take recess. I do a lot of movement breaks in my classroom, and that's incorporated into what I'm going to be sending home, is to go out, have recess, give mom and dad a break. But Cardin worries some of her students, especially those who rely on hands-on help for special needs, will struggle with remote learning. The DOE says during the closure, it may bring small groups of special ed students back to school to get services. Details are still in the works. Cardin says her district is doing its best in these extraordinary circumstances, but... Moving forward into next year, what is that going to look like for all of the kids that are missing this instruction? I mean, you can give instruction via, you know, the internet, but it's not the same as face-to-face. And face-to-face may be a long way off. As of now, schools are closed for weeks, but some are preparing for it to last longer. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Sarah Gibson. Andrea Hermans is a sixth grade teacher at the Smith Campus School in Northampton, Massachusetts, and she joins me by phone to talk about how she's juggling remote learning and caring for her own kid at home. I started off by asking Andrea what remote learning will look like for her students. For me, the most important thing is keeping kids happy and engaged in some kind of learning tasks. Um, I don't know that we're looking to advance our curriculum um, during this time. I think keep making sure kids um, feel supported emotionally. Um, you know, there's nothing, not going to be anything like too rigid. Um, I, me, myself, I'm a fan of using time as flexibly as possible in my classroom. I can do that as an elementary educator to some extent. And so the types of learning tasks that I'm trying to create are going to be things that um, students can do, you know, with some of the materials I've sent home, but also to try to, you know, use what they have at hand or use things that, you know, are part of their who they are and their personal interests. How are you feeling about all of this? <laughs> I mean, I think I'm a positive person by by nature. Um, you know, I'm just trying to find joy in, you know, the moments that I can, um, you know, here at home with my son, you know, though there's obviously a lot of limits 
um, you know, and, and I'm a very extroverted person, so social dis- dis- distancing, sorry, is, you know, not something that comes naturally to me. Um, but we've, you know, we've already gone for some bike rides. We've done some hikes. You know, I think finding things that we can do, um, you know, together to enjoy the day and, and find that balance is really important. And that's sort of like the message that I want to pull up, put out to my students as well, that I want them to be able to do things that involve being playful and being joyful and work that feels meaningful and relevant to them, but also keeps them sort of in that kind of mindset. Yeah, right. So you, you've mentioned that you have a kid at home who's in kindergarten. How do you as a parent feel about him not being in school? I mean, I have mixed feelings. I, I mean, I, you know, he's in kindergarten and though people, you know, someone might say, oh, well, you know, that's just kind of like the very beginning. For me, that's where you have sort of all the foundations being laid for learning. And he loves school as much as a teacher parent could hope for. He really, truly does. Um, and so, you know, I, I want to make sure that, you know, that he's able to continue to enjoy his learning, I guess. But again, nothing super rigid. I want him to feel happy. I want him to, you know, continue to feel good about learning and not feel like I'm making him sit down to do, you know, 30 worksheets. <laughs> um, you know, I, I, I don't, I, both as a parent and as a teacher, I, I feel like that would not be a good use of our time. Yeah. How are you going to juggle remote teaching and taking care of your son? You know, I, I have some sense of the kinds of things that I want us to be able to do on a daily basis. So getting outside whenever possible um, is really important um, for me and for him, I think. Um, finding things that he can do on his own. Um, he loves to look at books on his own. He loves to play with Legos. He loves to you know, build things. And so providing those kinds of tasks and like saying things like, oh, I'm going to set this timer for an hour. We're going to have an hour of you know, kind of doing our own thing, and that way I can get work done. But obviously, as a parent, like, things are going to come up, or there might be a day where he's kind of cranky or just feeling like he needs to you know, get outside for longer periods of time, and so just adapting to that as needed kids are so resilient. Um, you know, I, I think about, you know, how, you know, there have been things in my life that at the time I was, I thought would just be so important or just were so hard. And like, I can't even remember what half of those things were now. And I, I would hope that at some point, you know, that will be the case for all these kiddos with what's going on right now. Andrea, thank you so much for speaking with me. Absolutely. I'm happy to and, and stay safe and sane. <laughs> you too. That was Andrea Hermans. She's a mother and sixth grade teacher in Massachusetts. We'd like to hear about your experience with remote learning. What is worrying you? What are you looking forward to? And do you or your kids have the tools you need to make remote learning happen? Call our comment line and share your experience at 860-275-7595. Again, that's 860 860- Two seven five seven five nine five, and we look forward to hearing from you. Researchers in the Northeast are working overtime to try to produce a vaccine for the coronavirus. Those vaccines could be well over a year away, but as WSHU's J.D. Allen reports, this is not unchartered territory. The lessons learned in past epidemics are now influencing how scientists are fighting the spread of COVID-19. SARS is like a distant cousin of COVID-19, the disease the new coronavirus causes. In fact, SARS is a type of coronavirus, and COVID-19 and SARS 
both cause severe, fast-acting respiratory problems. That's why health officials are optimistic they know how to treat the symptoms of COVID-19. And unfortunately, why researchers like Fred Cohen say the devil is in the details. Viruses can evolve. Cohen is a microbial ecologist at Wesleyan University. He says creating a vaccine before the virus has a chance to become more efficient in its transmission is key. Take the Ebola virus. Ebola had a chance to go through thousands of cycles through humans. From infection to infection to infection, there was a lot of opportunity for it to get better at infecting humans. People with Ebola were quarantined and treated, a vaccine was approved and manufactured months later, and healthy people, for the most part, stayed healthy. Cohen says public health officials and health professionals have learned a lot from viral outbreaks in recent years. He says step one, the best medicine against the spread of the coronavirus is social distancing. But it's not a long-term solution and points to why vaccines are needed. I don't see that there's something that we could do to socially distance ourselves enough to wash our hands a little better that would prevent this from continuing in our species into the indefinite future. A vaccine would help a healthy person's natural defenses prevent the virus from transmitting, infecting, and evolving any further. Janet Hearing is an associate professor in the Department of Microbiology and Immunology at the Renaissance School of Medicine at Stony Brook University. She says the body's immune system kicks in and adapts to viral infections once the vaccine is introduced. That induces an immune response that can prevent a virus that you encounter out in the community from starting an infection. And she says there are dozens of different approaches scientists will take to try to produce a vaccine that works. Many of them replicate what has already been done for vaccines that we routinely get. One of the vaccines in development would be administered as a shot and contains the killed virus. And then treat it with a chemical so that it's no longer able to cause an infection. And then inject that material into, typically into the muscle, uh, like we do with the influenza vaccine that most people get every year. Other researchers have in development a vaccine that genetically weakens a living virus. If it can't replicate well in the body, our immune systems then control it when it's given as a vaccine. It would be given through a nasal spray, like the flu mist vaccine for influenza. Hearing says these are both proven methods to allow for the mass production of a vaccine to get the number of doses needed to protect against the coronavirus in the future. The infrastructure is already in place. There are already good protocols that could be rapidly adopted and tested for uh, large-scale vaccine production. In the meantime, health officials and researchers ask the public to do their part with good hygiene and social distancing while they develop safeguards against future outbreaks. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm J.D. Allen. This past Monday, the Trump administration announced that a potential coronavirus vaccine is in the human trial phase. That vaccine was developed in part by a Massachusetts-based company. After the break, a school gets rid of a mascot some Native Americans find racist and offensive, and then brings it back. And the journey of an ESPN editor who wrote a headline in 2012 that some interpreted as a racial slur. It's next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters. 
who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the Common Sense Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative and its coverage of climate change and the evolving clean energy economy. Support also comes from Douglas Stone and Mary Schwab Stone through the Smart Family Foundation of New York. Welcome back. I'm Morgan Springer. A school board in Killingly, Connecticut, decided earlier this year to reinstate a mascot that's offensive to some Native Americans. Killingly High School sports teams are again known as Redmen, despite a recent effort to ditch the name. This may be the first reversal of its kind in the U.S. In a bit, we'll talk with a Nipmuc tribal member who went to Killingly in the 90s. But first, Connecticut Public Radio's Frankie Graziano joins us to give some backstory. And I asked him to talk about how rare this sort of reversal is. When you do something that's kind of rare like that, you start to make news. You start to make national news, maybe for the wrong reasons. Um, This has been covered by the Washington Post. It's been covered by the New York Times. I spoke to a guy named Paul Lucas who works for UniWatch. It's a sports blog. So he's been covering this kind of thing for 20 years. Um, He's been writing for 20 years, but he's been covering the the Native American uh, mascot issue and debate for that long. He says he's never seen it before. He also says it's kind of indicative of the times and the politics, and something like this can divide a town like it has divided Killingly. Okay, yeah. So let's let's go back. Um, and let's start last summer. That's when the Nipmunk Tribal Nation in Northeast Connecticut recommended that the school board get rid of the Redmond mascot and name. What exactly did the Nipmunk tribe say to the school board? They say they denounced the name uh, in a letter they signed. They say even when the organization using said mascots believe they are in some way flattering or used as a means of honoring Native Americans. So just to just to uh, kind of pack that up, no matter what mascot they use, it doesn't honor our tribe that's indigenous to this area. And so the school board agrees and they they get rid of the name. And then there's the process of deciding what to replace it with. What do they decide? So the town um, starts to buzz a little bit because now you're coming up with that next name. And so there's this whole process. There's a different, a couple different rounds of voting. Throughout the process, the name that survives, it gets like 80% of the student vote. It gets a great majority is Red Hawks. They even have this new, um, uh, at the scores table that they have for the basketball games, they have this great uh, logo that's a Red Hawk. And, and I think it costs like thousands of dollars hmm. to get this thing in. And the students overwhelmingly support it. It looks like the town's overwhelmingly ready to move on. But then around the fall, that's when it starts to pick up steam the other way that now people are going to run for the school board and they're going to make the mascot issue uh, their platform. And that's when the opposition to uh, Red Hawks began. Why are they against the change? What are they saying? So people that are for the Red Men name uh, tend to be adults, alumni. I have talked to some students that are that that like the Red Men name, but it tends to be alumni that are outspoken about it. Um, adults in the town that are on the school board, they say that they've been honoring Native Americans for eighty years for having the Red Men name. They also say that. If you get rid of this name, what happens next? So it was kind of like a fear message that uh, that I had seen. Yeah. Okay. So November happens five four. Let's reinstate the Redmond name. Um, I'm just wondering. So what so, actually happened first, though, Morgan, yeah. was in, in December they were like, you know, we there was a five hour marathon meeting. 
a ton of media there, a lot of pressure on the school board. It's the first meeting of the new school board members that were elected, uh, particularly the new school board members that were saying, we're coming in here and we're going to restore that Redmen name. The first thing they're able to do that night is get rid of Red Hawks. Now they don't have a mascot for about a month until the next school board meeting, and they play a championship game in football in December with no mascot name. Okay, so January meeting, 5-4 vote, restore the Redmond name. What are the the four people who voted against um, bringing back the name saying? So while all five uh, people that voted um, in favor of restoring the mascot were Republicans, there actually was one Republican that voted um, against restoring the name. Uh, the other three were Democrats, including Hoween Flexer, who's somebody I've been talking through uh, with throughout this process, who's been pretty enraged about the fact that now they're going back to the Redmen name. Students came to the meeting. We had an opportunity to engage the students. We had an opportunity to engage the Native Americans. People reached out to help us, and we refused to accept their help. Hoween now says that as a, as a Democratic member of the board, as somebody who's vehemently opposed to the uh, red men name. She says that she now wants the state to take a look at this and go ahead and ban mascot imagery that's offensive to Native Americans, something that Oregon has done, something that our neighbors in Maine have done. Okay, finally, let's talk about one other stakeholder in this, which is the students. Um, and I understand you caught up with a Killingly athlete recently. Her name is Jessica Long, and she plays on the tennis team. And let's hear from Jessica. I have like three sweatshirts that are from freshman year that I used to wear all the time. And I refuse to wear them now because I don't want to be known as that. Jessica's even been uh, bullied, I guess you could say, for wearing a, a red men's shirt. Um, she told me that she was uh, walking by in a sweater and somebody had driven by in a car and, and was yelling at her for wearing that. You can imagine now 14, 15, 16, 17-year-old kids having to play a game and focus on that. And now they're maybe wearing a jersey that is offensive. What if the kids decide, you know, I'm not going to wear the jersey if it says Redmond on it. Can they still, can the athletes still play in those games? So, I mean, I talked to Jessica a little further on this. I mean, they're 14, 15, 16-year-old kids again. They're probably wear the jersey if their coach told them to, but she really doesn't want to. I went to a Killingly game recently, and the JV jerseys had Redmond on them, but um, the varsity jerseys, do have Killingly all on them, but uh, a majority of the jerseys in the town are going to say Killingly, so maybe it won't come Redmond. down to, yes, yeah. but um, you know, you go to the gym, as I recently did, you still see red men and red gals on the court, and that's something that wouldn't have been there had this whole debate happened with the restoration of the red men name. Frankie Graziano is a reporter for Connecticut Public Radio. Frankie, thank you so much. Thank you, Morgan. I appreciate it. Our next guest is a member of the Chibunagungamog Band of Nipmuc Indians. Barbie Gardner serves on their tribal council. She also went to Killingly High School, graduating in the early 90s. As we just heard, the Nipmuc denounced the use of the Redmond mascot, and Barbie joined us from outside Killingly High School to talk about it. Barbie Gardner, thank you for talking. Hi, I'm happy to be here. So back when you went to Killingly High School in the late 80s and early 90s, uh, the mascot was Redmen. Did people talk about it then? No, they really didn't then. Did you, did you think about it, you know, as a student there? Did you have feelings about it? You know, um, 
I, I honestly, I don't think I have the perspective then that I do now. But you know, as we grow and and times change, it, it has been something I think about. Yeah. So, talk a little bit about those that progression and um, when you started having feelings about the mascot. Um, around the same time, uh, in the early 90s, I became more involved in the tribe and taking on more, more responsibility. Um, I met a lot more Native people and really gained um, a different perspective at that time. Um, and about, I want to say about five years ago, um, there was a lot of discussion regarding the Bartlett High School mascot. Um, and we were involved in, in talking with the school then to get their mascot changed. So, and now, having gone through that process and having gone through this process, when you hear the name of this mascot at, at Killingly, what, what are the emotions and feelings that it brings up for you? Honestly, at this point, I mean, we were really happy um, when the last board let the Nipmuc people weigh in on the decision and ultimately left it up to us. And we really felt that was a fair um, and just thing for them to do. So when the new board took over and reversed it back to Redmen, we were really disappointed. Um, it just didn't make sense to us. What is your response um, to those board members who voted to reinstate the old mascot when they say, um, hey, actually, we're honoring Native Americans? Yeah, I I think we've made it really clear then, um, uh, back for the old board and this board, that you can't honor someone who just doesn't feel honored by that. Um, Naming a team a skin color in in 2020 is just ridiculous really do you do you have a sense of um if all members of your particular tribe feel the same way um i do have a feel for that um i think the majority of us feel the way um the way i do and um but i do know that there are some native people who don't have a problem with it but i think by and large um, we would like to see it changed. What would the people who don't have a problem with it say, or what have you heard them say? That by keeping it, we're not being completely erased from history. Um, but I think most of us agree that there's a better way to teach the students um, the history of the indigenous people that lived in this area. So now the board has reinstated the old mascot and name. What's next? Do you as an individual or as a tribe, have have plans to take action? As a tribe, we haven't discussed it. Um, our next meeting is on January 25th, and I know that is going to be a topic that we will be talking about. Um, personally, I think that it needs to be fought at the state level. Um, similarly to the way Maine just passed um, a law, um, I think it was in May, um, that's my personal feeling on it. That was Barbie Gardner, an alumna of Killingly High School and a member of the Chibanagungamog Band of Nipmuc Indians. This sound was recorded last year from the Cathedral of St. Joseph in Hartford, Connecticut. It's an ordination of two Catholic priests. We're starting here because one of the biggest social media controversies of the past decade actually prepared one of these men for priesthood. 
Martin Kessler from WBUR's show Only a Game has the story. On the night of February 17, 2012, Anthony Federico was working his job at the ESPN headquarters in Bristol, Connecticut. Anthony was an editor for ESPN's mobile website. He was responsible for deciding what stories people would see if they went to ESPN on their phones. Around 2.30 the next morning, Anthony hit publish on a new headline. A headline that I had used myself many times before and that sports media sites have been using for years. And about a half hour later, I realized that it had been going viral for the wrong reason. Uh, When I realized how the social media world was taking that headline, I got up from my desk and I went to the bathroom and I threw up several times because I was aghast and horrified at at what was going down. The headline was quickly changed. Anthony spoke to his boss, who tried to console him. But when Anthony left the office, he says he was still distraught. He drove to his parents' house. And woke them up, maybe like 4.30 in the morning. And I told them what happened. And they were like, okay, this will blow over. And it did not. That became clear a few hours later. Uh, that same boss called me early in the morning and it's like, uh, don't, uh, don't turn on your phone. Don't look at the web. Don't look at anything. It's bad. And I asked, how bad is it? And he said, it's bad. Anthony Federico grew up outside New Haven, Connecticut. I grew up in a big Italian-American family. I'm the oldest of five kids and the best-looking and the smartest and most (laughs) athletic of the five kids. No, I'm just kidding. And uh, we grew up in a very culturally Catholic family. Anthony loved sports. He swam and played tennis, baseball, and hockey. He went to Notre Dame High School, then Providence College, a Catholic university in Rhode Island. A lot of guys growing up in Connecticut that are sports fans maybe have it in the back of their mind to work for ESPN someday. So after graduating from Providence, Anthony got a job as a temp in ESPN's tape library. He'd go to a huge warehouse to track down videotapes for the different ESPN shows. Put it in a basket of a bicycle because the warehouse was so big that I would ride this bicycle around, you know, getting all the different tapes that had been requested. Then Anthony would return to the ESPN campus to deliver the tapes. And it was cool because I got to meet a lot of different people all over ESPN's campus. And I was asking questions like, what do you do? And what is your job like? And I made a lot of friends that way. In 2007, after about six months working the tape library, 23-year-old Anthony Federico landed in that role as a content editor for ESPN's mobile website. It was really cool. My job was to watch the night of sports unfold and kind of make editorial decisions in real time about what stories we're going to lead with, what angles we're going to promote. And so you're writing the headlines and you're hitting publish. There wasn't like someone to look it over before it goes out there. Yes. Yes. It's everything needs to happen five minutes ago, kind of sense of urgency, uh, you know, deadline culture. And it was, that was part of the draw of it, how exciting and fast paced my work was. And yeah, everything happens very quickly. So jumping ahead a little bit, tell me what's going on in the sports world in early February of 2012. The talk of the sports world was Jeremy Lin. Lin to the basket, reverse slap, he cuts it in. The meteoric rise of Jeremy Lin from point guard at Harvard to catching on with the Knicks. Lin puts it up, bang, Jeremy Lin from downtown. And 
leading the Knicks on a winning streak that had the sports world buzzing. I believe he was on the cover of Sports Illustrated two issues in a row. How could this guy go undrafted in the NBA? How could he get cut by two teams this year? From bench warmer to big star overnight. New York. He's a devout Christian. The only Asian American player in the league. For Anthony Federico, Lynn's sanity wasn't just a great story. The Knicks had always been his favorite team. It was exciting. And that brings us back to the night of February 17th, 2012. Anthony was at his desk at ESPN, and Jeremy Lin and the Knicks were playing the New Orleans Hornets. And he played poorly. He had nine turnovers in this game, but he did And the, the Knicks lost. The winning streak is over for Jeremy Lin. And at 2.30 in the morning, I wrote a headline to reflect his first display of weakness as a starter for the Knicks. And I wrote the headline, Chink in the Armor. This was the headline that went viral, that sent Anthony into the bathroom to throw up. I was shocked that that people were misinterpreting this headline as a racial slur and not as um, an expression to describe, you know, his first display of weakness. Anthony would later say the headline was a lapse in judgment and an awful editorial omission. When Anthony woke up a few hours after the headline was published, the story was all over the Internet. My name and address got leaked to the media, so the paparazzi started following me around and started getting hate mail and death threats from all over the world. And a lot of the late-night talk shows were roasting me. And, you know, my face was on a lot of newspapers, and I was this big racist villain. It was brutal. And how did you come to learn that you'd been fired? I was fired via conference call three or four days later. Wow. Um, do you remember what was said during that conference? Call? Yeah, I yeah I do. I'm not going to get into it. Okay. Did you feel like you should have been fired? I um, I appreciate that that was a headline that I should have foreseen the consequences to, and I would have loved to have been. Um, defended that I was a a good employee for a number of years and that everyone who knew me at the company spoke very highly of my character. So what happened next for you? Yeah, those were the worst 30 days of my life. I, uh, I filed for unemployment, which is humbling. My family was great. My, my close friends were great. I started looking for work, but I was, (laughs) as you might imagine, pretty toxic in the sports media industry. I thought that I didn't deserve what happened to me, and I blamed God for that. And I thought about killing myself several times. And then Jeremy Lin himself reached out to me. I got an email from his cousin. It was polite and gracious, and it was just, when they get back from their next road trip, he'd like to meet you in Manhattan for lunch. And at first I was like, yeah, right. Just some prankster having fun with me. But Anthony checked it out. The invitation was real. Heading into the lunch with Jeremy Lin, Anthony was nervous. He didn't need to be. He told me that he didn't think that the headline was racial and intent. And that was so huge to hear him. I'm eternally grateful to him for his kindness. So we talked about the headline for a few minutes. And then we talked mostly about the world and our faith. Do you view that as, like, a turning point, at least for your mental health and well-being? Very much so. I felt like that was a moment of 
wow, he didn't have to do this. In fact, it probably would have been easier for him to just let it go. That is the kind of gesture that someone doesn't forget. Around that same time, Anthony landed a new job with a sports media startup in Stamford, Connecticut. He says it felt like now his life could start over again. Oh, it was such relief. During his lunch breaks, Anthony started going on walks around Stamford. On one of my walks, I happened upon a Catholic church, a busy basilica in the middle of downtown Stamford that was having mass during the day. And I didn't even know that Catholics go to mass on weekdays and not just on Sundays. But the doors were open. I could see them going to church on there. And, oh, maybe that could be cool. But, nah, I'm not, I'm not that kind of guy. So on the first day, I go past it. And second day, I go past it. And how biblical. On the third day, I decide I'm going to go to church in the middle of the afternoon on a Wednesday. And I went into this 1210 mass. The regulars kind of called it the suit and tie mass because all the businessmen and women uh, would leave their offices and come to mass on their lunch break. And I started going to mass every day on my lunch break. And it's this oasis of stillness and silence and ritual. And and it was just such a sharp contrast that it, it called to me. Anthony noticed that every day before Mass, the priest would hear confession. And often the line was so long for people going to confession that the priest would have to apologize to the five or six people still waiting in line because he had to run up and start the Mass on time. And every day I would see on this priest's face this, like, uh, anguish. So I was watching him one day and I said, Lord, if only we had more priests we could have two lines of confession going, oh, if only we had more priests. Anthony says that as a kid, people had told him he should grow up to be a priest. But he hadn't really taken the idea seriously until now. I applied to be a seminarian for the Archdiocese of Hartford, Connecticut, and I was accepted. I thought I would go to seminary for one month and hate it, but I was there for six years, and I've never been happier. And then just last June 22nd, I was ordained a priest of Jesus Christ for the Catholic Church. How do you think this awful experience you had with, you know, social media outrage and facing death threats and all that, how do you think that will shape you as a priest? I think a sense of sympathy uh, for what people are going through and how everyone has a story that goes deeper than their worst moment or one thing they put out on the internet and... I have a sense of what it's like to be angry at God in this big way, and I can relate to them when they bring me their struggles and their hopes and their dreams and their fears. And I think that that feeling of being abandoned by God was part of this whole process of preparing me for priesthood. Father Anthony Federico is now assigned to St. Bridget of Sweden Parish in Cheshire, Connecticut. He says he still avidly follows the Yankees and Knicks. And how much do you follow uh, Jeremy Lin's career at this point? Uh, Yeah, I would say casually, but with interest when his name does come up. I said a prayer for him recently when uh, he was kind of public about his free agency situation. Back in July, Lin, who since that incredible two-week stretch with the Knicks in 2012 has struggled with injuries and bounced around to six different NBA teams, spoke on a Christian TV station in Taiwan. Lin was crying as he said, rock bottom just seems to keep getting more and more rock bottom for me. 
I feel like in some ways the NBA has kind of given up on me. I hope he finds whatever it is he's looking for as well. Have you been in touch with him at all since your lunch? I have not. I hope you guys can reconnect at some point. Yeah, that would be cool. I, I feel like uh, God knows what his schedule's like, but as a priest, my priority is my people and my parish, and if it ever worked out that we could get together, that would be great. And if not, that's cool too, because I have such great affection for him. That story was produced by Martin Kessler of WBUR's show Only a Game. Coming up, trained pigeons race across the sky, and the human owner that wins makes the big bucks. It's next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the John Merck Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative and its coverage of climate and clean energy. Until I heard this next story, I had no idea pigeon racing was a thing. But it is, and last year the International Federation of American Homing Pigeon Fanciers held their annual convention and race in eastern Massachusetts. Producer Cariad Harmon was there when the pigeon fanciers entered their birds in the competition. Can you tell me where we are and what we're doing? We're at the uh, Rhode Island Pigeon Club, and we're getting ready to ship the uh, 139th IF Convention Pigeon Race. It's the night before the biggest race of the season, and the Rhode Island Pigeon Club is packed. There are two floors full of silver-haired men in their 60s and 70s. They're laughing, drinking, and there are crates of pigeons everywhere. How does a homing pigeon know his way back home along the route? A route that he has never, ever flown. Do you have any birds that you think stand a good chance of winning this race? How confident you I hope I got a bunch of them, but you don't know until tomorrow. That's the beauty of this sport, you know? We sit in our backyard, we look up in the sky and hope Pretty Boy shows up. There's a long table at one end of the club and three men behind it are logging each bird and packing them into metal crates. That beeping you can hear is the sound of the pigeons getting scanned in. It's a slick operation. They've got over 500 birds to load tonight. It's already 7.30, and I'm definitely in the way. Let's go. Time to go. We are holding up everybody here. After three solid hours of scanning and packing, the pigeons are loaded into a customized trailer. So what's happening now? These guys all got loaded in? They're all locked up. It's locked. No way a bird can get out until they get to the race station in the Mara. They'll let them out. They'll fly home. The driver is headed to what they call a liberation point in Rochester, New York. Tomorrow morning, the birds will be released, and that's where their real journey begins. Each pigeon has to fly at least 350 miles to make it home. They're headed for lofts in Providence, Fall River, New Bedford and Boston. It's a dangerous journey. There are strong winds, hawks and telephone wires ahead of them. The first one back wins $25,000.
My mother hated three things. Motorcycles, pigeons, and tattoos, and I had all three. That's Steve. He and his racing partner, George, have ten pigeons on that trailer. They've been at this a long time. A lot of my friends, when we were growing up, back in, in those days, we used to keep, we had pigeons. There was about 13 of us, 12, 13-year-olds. We had birds in our backyard. Just about every house down the south end of New Bedford had a pigeon loft. It was just a way of life then. This younger generation, they don't want to spend the time and the effort. They don't want to work. They just want everything to come easy. And pigeon flying isn't easy. It's work. There's always new systems and new scientific ways of doing things. The, the feeding system, the medication, it's all, it's all changed over the years. And you have, you have to keep reading and stay up with that stuff and... Uh, it's knowledge, knowledge and dedication. Steve and George have over 75 years of experience between them. But even so, every race is unpredictable. They're going to do what they want to do. Most of the time they'll come home. Sometimes they won't. You can depend on a few of them, but that bird may be first this week and may never show up again. Do you feel like you're always searching for that elusive bird? There's only been one secretary in the world, and that's what you're looking for in the pigeon world. You know, it's hard to find him. In Rochester, New York, just a few minutes after sunrise, the birds are released. Three, two, one. driver reported the weather conditions at 8 were partly cloudy skies, south by southwest winds 38 degrees and 10 mile visibility. Once you let them go, that's it. They don't belong to anybody. They belong to themselves. The long distant birds seem to have, uh, you can almost call it courage to, to stay in the air for 12, 13 hours non-stop flying. You know, that's a mental thing. They have to have that courage. It's incredible. You're right. I mean, if you take a bird 600 miles away from home, no GPS, no street signs, nothing, no maps. It's, that's incredible. Think about it. They're loyal. That's what makes them come home. You know, fly all that distance uh, week after week to come home for their their home and their perch and their uh, their mates, you know. Hi, Steve. Hey, how are you? Good, how are you? Okay. Still waiting. It's 4 p.m. at the pigeon loft, <laughs> and Steve's been watching the sky for an hour. If I get a bird, it should be coming right right there, between that tree there. And the we stand in the yard together and wait for a while. Come on, let's go. The sun is just beginning to set, and the sky is turning a deep blue. Oh. <laughs> No, they're I know they're up there. I know they're coming. Once it gets dark, the birds roost for the night. So if we're going to see a pigeon today, we need to see it soon. I like to get at least one anyway in the money. It'd be nice after all this work and time. And you know, what are you going to do? After almost an hour, hello, you hear me now? Steve gets a call from his buddy John. <laughs> John says you better go to Mike's. <laughs> are they coming in at Mike's? He doesn't know. Their friend Mike has a lot more birds in the race. It breaks my heart to leave Steve and his coop, but I want to see a pigeon land. So I hit the road. Half an hour later, I'm in Wareham. Any birds yet? 
There's a lookout tower in Mike's yard that stands 14 feet above the ground. Oh my gosh, this is amazing. I climb to the top. <laughs> Mike, you're king of the world up here. And stare up at the sky. All right, so I'm up in the air in a captain's chair waiting for these pigeons. We've got to get some more while I'm here. I've been at, at, at the house when the birds are coming in. Come on. Suddenly here comes the first bird. Oh, oh. Oh, what? Oh, my God. There's a pigeon coming. Oh, my God. Okay, it's flying directly overhead. It goes... Right. It, 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 it flies around the coop. Oh, there it goes. There it goes. Oh, no. They're screaming, come, 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 come. They're trying to get the darn bird to come in. He's trying to coax him over. He's got this long stick. It looks almost like an enormous pool cue. And he's just flying around, flying around. Oh, he's circling around. He's a grey pigeon. Oh, my gosh, no, he's sitting on the chimney of the house. We've all lost races around, around the coop. You go to the club and you find out you're second place by... Uh, yeah. One second. That pigeon hasn't clocked in yet, right? It's, it's happened to everybody, yeah. Okay. Oh, my gosh. At last, the bird enters the coop. After nine solid hours in the air, he's made it home. Tonight, in the banquet hall at the Dedham Holiday Inn, the winners are announced. And the handler of this magnificent bird is my good friend, Mr. Hassan Prashkov from <laughs> Steve and George didn't make the winner's circle this time around. And tomorrow morning, when the sun comes up, just four of their birds will finally make it home. The other one's going to come any minute now. It should be coming. <laughs> Carrie Ed Harmon is the co-host and producer at Nashville Public Radio's podcast, Neighbors. She produced that story for the Transom Story Workshop in Woods Hole, Massachusetts. That's a wrap on our show this week. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts. Just search Next New England. Next is produced by me, Morgan Springer. Vanessa De La Torre is our executive editor. The executive producer is Katie Talarski. The New England News Collaborative is powered by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, Connecticut Public Radio, Vermont Public Radio, New Hampshire Public Radio, Maine Public Radio, New England Public Radio, WBUR, WCAI, WGBH, WSHU, and the Public's Radio.